welcome to the Fracture Line, the official weekly news feed from the Chest Wall Injury Society, where we will listen to all the bottom line CWIS updates, shoutouts, fun facts, and weekly banner. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Crisco, and I'm joined always by Dr. Tom White, Dr. Adam Kay, and Sarah Ann Whitbeck. We're very excited to welcome Dr. John Mayberry to the Fracture Line today. I don't think that you need an introduction. Most people probably know exactly who you are, but if you don't mind, Dr. Mayberry, just telling us, uh, telling the listeners a little bit about yourself, uh, your practice, and even where you are right now. I think that'd be very interesting. Oh, well, thank you, Mark. Uh, appreciate the invitation and um, happy to speak with you today. I'm, I'm a general trauma surgeon. Uh, and um, although I've always tell people I'm a general surgeon that does trauma, uh, and of course that's uh, in the training that we had uh, years ago, that's... Uh, and, and also my mentor, one of my main mentors, Dr. Trunke, and, and his generation, they always considered themselves general surgeons that did trauma. And, uh, of course, Dr. Trunke always believed that all general surgeons should do trauma. So he, he was not a big proponent of uh, people branching off into little tiny subspecialties so much. But, but anyway, um, I've been doing that for a long time, and uh, I was there at Oregon on the faculty for a long time. I had uh, previous military experience. Uh, I was in the active duty Air Force. That was way back in the 90s uh, during the Somalia thing. Uh, and uh, I, I was actually deployed back then in the Air Force. But uh, more recently, I've joined the Navy Reserves. And uh, one of the reasons I joined the Navy is because uh, I wanted to be closer to the combat uh, situation which the Navy and the Army would provide rather than the Air Force. Of course, nowadays uh, they have a thing called the Joint Trauma System, so even the Air Force surgeons will often be augmenting a hospital near a combat zone. So it's, it's not like it used to be where, um, it, well, it's a joint trauma service. Uh, they'll, you'll have Army, Navy, Air Force uh, surgeons uh, all working together at any particular hospital. But anyway, where I am right now is I'm on my annual training with the Navy Reserves, which I joined more recently. And we're at Camp Pendleton, and um, we're, I'm, I'm just finishing up our training. We've been training medics, uh, Navy medics, uh, in a hospital, uh, a temporary hospital for the past two weeks. And, um, you know, one thing I might make a plug for is that if any of you are interested, especially if, you know, if you're a little bit longer in the tooth like myself, they could use experienced uh, both general uh, surgeons and orthopedic surgeons especially. There's a shortage right now, so if any of you have any predilection for that, uh, you would be more than welcome and put to use for sure. Um, it's, it's, it's definitely needed. There's, there's a shortage right now. You know, our active duty um, military surgeons are being called upon to um, do so many deployments, and uh, and so many of these active duty military surgeons are young men and women. You know, they got little kids at home. And one of the things that uh, I thought when I joined the Navy Reserves that it would be nice if I could help out these uh, younger surgeons that have families, since my family's grown, and uh, you know they could stay home for one of those deployments, and I could do it instead. So. Um, and of course, some of you know I was in Afghanistan last year, 
Uh, I, I spent uh, a good portion of last year in Kandahar at the combat hospital in Kandahar. Um, so those opportunities are available if you have any predilection for that. It's real, an interesting appeal and certainly something uh, I've often thought about, but I'm worried about that incident in my past with the minivan and the clown costume. I'm just not sure that that I'd ever be able to, uh, to to meet the requirements, um, but I'll but I'll look. Uh, you and I need to have a conversation about this for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks, thanks, thanks for joining us today. It's really, really a it's always an honor and a pleasure to ch chat with you, but especially uh, today uh, in light of the of the events. And uh, thank you for bringing us kind of back down to earth and you know, getting us to reflect on what's re what really matters. Uh, thank you for yeah, that, John. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you, Tom. Well, we uh, we wanted to have you on today to talk about your book, Rib Fracture Management. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, I mean, uh, the uh, publishers uh, wanted to put out a, you know, not a huge textbook, but, a, you know, these are smaller textbooks uh, that they're putting out. They're putting out a whole series of them on a variety of topics where they have a more specific topic. And as you know, the book is not huge and thick, and it, it is focused on the management of rib fractures. And uh, Tom White was actually involved in, I think he was one of the first to be, uh, you know, contacted by the publisher. And he talked to myself and uh, Mark DeMoya about uh, editing this textbook. And so, you know, thanks, thanks to Tom, I, I did get involved in it, which I was happy to do. You know, the purpose of it was to put out a monograph that you could you could basically hold in your hand, or I suppose a lot of people have electronic copies where it's it's not hugely long, and the chapters are relatively short and pithy, uh, not a lot of speculation, trying to get um, you know what what is known, and then what are we looking to try to find out about what is known in each of the chapters. You know, I think it took us about a year, year and a half to get all the chapters together and finally written. Uh, but yeah, it was. I, I I think the product was pretty good. The, this the concept or the role of surgical textbooks moving forward is an interesting one. I I must admit I don't read textbooks as vigorously as I used to used to um, when those were the you know really a primary source of knowledge for us. But now you know we have so many other avenues, ways to to access expert advice and and the literature, etc. So I'm just wondering if. Do you think that do you think the textbook is becoming obsolete, or is there still a role for one? Well, I think people still like to hold a book in their hands and carry it with them on an airplane. I mean, I certainly do. You know, I, I think when we when we brought that textbook to the uh, Chest Wall Injury Society meetings, I mean, a lot of people were excited about having a physical copy in their hand. I wouldn't be surprised if they had both. You know, had both a physical copy and an electronic copy. So I, I presume that uh, it's not quite what it used to be, but I think there'll always be a role for a, a textbook, especially a small one you could you can carry in your hand in paperback. Well, that was the answer I, I hoped you would give because I I'm long in the tooth as well, and I actually read. Mark doesn't read, but uh, <laughs> but, but I I really think there is a role. And in, and in light of that, do you think we need to start considering an, a newer edition? Because a lot of stuff has happened in the last three or four years. Yeah, I would be totally in favor of it. I don't know if uh, if that particular publisher uh, does second editions on those small textbooks or not, but it'd be good to get started on it now because you know by the time it gets published, the time they decide to get it going. 
from the time it gets published is two to three years. And you can kind of, if you're writing the chapters and things have changed or something needs to be added, you could add something right at the last minute just before it gets finalized. Uh, well, we can certainly reach out to them and ask them if they're interested in give them the right of first refusal. And if they don't want to do it, then we could we can look elsewhere, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, I'd be in favor of that. I think we do have copies of this textbook in our CWIS store um, at, at each of the summit meetings, or I should say for the past three summit meetings, we have had it there. Um, and currently we're I'm rebuilding the online version, but it will be, um, I have a whole stack of them actually just right here in my office. Um, but so we do have some available. Um, the publisher let us purchase them at a discounted rate. So if anyone listening is interested in purchasing uh, purchasing one, let me know because um, the site is not currently functional um, to actually do the online purchase. But we can send you an invoice and you can pay for it that way. I think it's important not to be to have too much speculation, uh, and I think it's also important not to editorialize. You know, uh, I think, Tom, you probably do this too, and maybe Mark, you know, when you review papers for a journal, it's astounding sometimes of how the authors will do a lot of speculation. Leaps of faith. Uh, it's almost like, yeah, they do a lot of leaps of faith. You know, you kind of have to, as a reviewer, you have to, you know, get the message back to them. You know, you could probably cut out that entire paragraph. And the other thing that people do is they editorialize a lot. So... I think we're all used to reading little bits of information uh, on our phones, like with uh, news. Uh, and, you know, news reporters write in a certain way. They, um, they often use words that are not scientific. Uh, they often use a lot of colloquial phrases. When you're writing a chapter for a textbook, you don't want it to be so dry that it's, you know, that it, you know, too too scientific. So it's so dry. But there's a good balance between scientific writing uh, and editorializing. The thing I think yeah. we've talked about is bias. Um, you know, you have to be careful when you're, whether you're writing a paper or whether you're writing a chapter, that your biases are not too apparent. And the, of course, one of the problems about biases is that we. Personally, we tend to be blind to our own biases. So it may not be obvious to us that we have a bias, but somebody reading our article or reading our chapter, it may be quite obvious to them. Right. I think bias is inherent and, and unavoidable for the most part, but if, as long as one identifies it, acknowledges it, I think that that mitigates a lot of the problems with bias. The one thing we don't do very well, I don't think, John, well, you, I shouldn't say that. You edited this textbook very well and you vetted all the chapters but I, I'm not sure that those chapters in a textbook go through the same rigorous vetting that a peer review article does and maybe well maybe you can speak to that do they and if they don't should they no they don't but but they shouldn't either I mean I, th I think it, it is a province of somebody writing a chapter to express their opinion uh, and there obviously there's a way to do that uh, you you need to express the other side of the story too it's, it's okay to put in a chapter uh, your opinion. And you, you can even use the phrase, in, in our opinion, you know, usually there might be a co-author. So you could uh, say, in our opinion, or you could present the evidence that uh, refutes your opinion, which you should, you know, present some ev evidence that refutes your opinion. And then, um, and then say, you could say something like, however, in our opinion, 
such and such and such and such. I think that's okay in a chapter. Sarah, do we have any updates for the week from your perspective? Um, just a couple quick updates. Um, the November forum that we spoke of earlier um, will be open for registration this week. So um, the site is just about finished. So by the time actually this podcast loads, I think that will have already gone out. So get excited. Um, it is November 10th from 6 to 10 a.m. Mountain Time. And then again from 2 to 6. Uh, p.m. Mountain Time, so you can figure out when when that fits into your uh, specific schedule for, for our various listeners in their time zones. Um, so we're really excited about the November Forum. As, as we mentioned, there are unique and interesting topics, um, as well as kind of some classic ones regarding pain management and, and other things like that that, that I think um, we've got a good opportunity to do some, some updates on. Um, we had a terrific webinar this week by Dr. Miguel Martinez, um, and if you missed it, you really missed out because he did an awesome job. It is posted on the website now, so um, you can go ahead and find it. I also posted links to it on Slack and on Twitter, so you can check that out if you, um, if you missed it. Otherwise, the, the links are there, or like I say, you can always go back to our website and locate that. Um, we have case review coming up in a couple weeks. We're all filled up on cases for September, but I don't have cases yet for October. So as you move through the next few weeks and, and see something interesting or even just have a very rudimentary case that goes really smoothly um, and think, you know, I should share that and, and help other people learn, then please, please go ahead and submit because we all, all learn from everybody's experience. So those are kind of the updates for the moment, I think. Wow, that's a world record for you, Sarah Ann. Right? I, I was trying to be efficient. Uh, Dr. Mayberry, we'd like to end with a, a final stitch, just um, anything that's on your mind, be it uh, clinically related or not. Um, yesterday, the National Park System turned 105 years old. They actually gave away free registration or free entry at all national parks for the day. I was, of course, working and couldn't actually visit the parks on on the birthday, but uh, if you haven't visited a national park lately, put it on your agenda for, for maybe Labor Day weekend or some upcoming weekend, take an extra day off and, and go to a national park. Enjoy enjoy the great outdoors. Uh, I have to thank CWIS and all of its members once again. I had my first case in my second day of work, my first rib case. It was a tough rib case, subscapular fractures, and I reached out to, of course, Dr. White and Dr. Dobin for a couple of tips. And uh, it went ex extraordinarily well. I mean, the guy could barely walk before, and day one, he's got his chest tube out, and he's about to go home. So, man, I could never have done it without you guys. So so thanks so much for, for great mentorship. Dr. White? Yeah, I had one, but I changed it here in the last minute or two. I was just so, 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 uh, so pleasing to be able to see John and hear him. And even though it's electronic, I, if it just, I miss, I miss my friends, my CWIS friends. And I, um, Zoom is, is a substitute, but it's not a great substitute, but it, but it, it's better than nothing. And I, I'm really looking forward to November. If you just, you know, November 10th, put it on your calendar, block out a day for yourself. You know, you'll re-engage with your CWIS friends and new friends from CWIS and it'll be a, psychological salve for you and I, I'm expecting it to be that for me so John thank you for for your time today it's great to see you oh yeah thank you, uh, thank you uh, Tom and, and Sarah and, and and Mark and I really appreciate inviting me of course we're just receiving word that uh, some members of the uh, Marines and the uh, Navy corpsmen have been killed in Kabul so we're that news is filtering to us and we're um, 
talking about it um, and uh, sad about it. So uh, certainly, um, you know, want to give some honor to uh, our fellow servicemen and Americans that uh, put themselves in harm's way over there, in, in you know very significant harm's way, and and uh, paid the price for it. So um, absolutely.